Welcome to Choice Classic Radio. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and help keep this show alive by donating at choiceclassicradio.com. For more of your favorite old-time radio shows, join us on our companion podcast, Choice Classic Radio Detectives, where we bring to you tales from the greatest detective shows the golden age of radio had to offer. And now... With 22 episodes made, broadcast on CBS Radio in 1938, we bring to you the Mercury Theater on the Air. Network takes pride in presenting Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in the fourth broadcast of a unique new series dramatizing famous narratives by great authors. This is the first time that a complete theatrical producing company has been brought to radio, and the Columbia Network again welcomes Mr. Welles and his associates to its own stations and to the stations of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, coast to coast. Every week, Orson Welles invites our listeners to suggest their favorite titles, and tonight the Mercury Theater on the air presents 39 Steps by John Buchan, with Orson Welles as Richard Hannay and Marmaduke Jopley. Here is Orson Welles. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I cannot divulge the full name of the author of The 39 Steps. Seven university degrees and a title make him a gentleman and a scholar and also practically unpronounceable. I think you'd like to know, if you didn't, that it is the present Governor General of the Dominion of Canada and the first Baron of Tweedsmuir who perpetrated this tall and shamelessly exciting spy story about high doings in Scotland. Lord Tweedsmuir, who in private life is a publisher, is himself very properly a Scotchman, who regards the sensational diversity of his responsibilities with the special calm of his nation. I regard my business, he says, as my profession, writing as my amusement, and politics as my duty. Shining head. 
stranger, and I ought to tell you this. Did you know what I thought then? Two thieves. A woman. Shh. Just stand there in a bowler hat. That's the old chap. Are you a bill collector? No. Uh, no, no. Well, stutter. Speak up. Then I'll tell you what I saw. An old, old lady in a tippet. Just sitting there. All right, through the keyhole. I'm not ashamed. I looked through the keyhole, and there was this old, old lady sitting in a chair. In Richard Henry's apartment. You know what? Her wig was crooked. And the phone kept ringing. And she didn't answer it. She just... She just sat there. With her eyes open. Get a bit of a sportsman, says he. I want you to lend me a cap and overall for ten minutes and be the sovereign for you. I've got to be a milkman, says he. Right, oh, says I. I ain't the man to spoil a bit of sport, and I take the quid. Quid, eh? Well, you know what Mr. Richard Henny is worth this afternoon? Five thousand pounds. Five thousand pounds? Five thousand pounds, dead or alive. Mr. Marmaduke Jopley? Go away. Mr. Jopley, it's a gentleman from Scotland Yard. What's that? What? What's that? Scotland Yard? Uh, Mr. Jopley, when did you last see Richard Hennick? Have I? Hennick, that's a funny thing. You know, there's an old lady up there this morning in his flat. I'm just sitting there. And she wouldn't answer the phone. Did you see Mr. Hennick? No, just the old lady. He wouldn't answer the door, so I looked for the key or you. you know, Inspector? She's just sitting there with her eyes open. She would be, Mr. Jopley. She would be. She was dead. Got it first? I'm sorry, sir. You missed it. She's just putting out. She won't make it, sir. Hey, dig it. Dig it, hey. Dig it, sir. Dig it. Thank you. Here, stow it, you. Do we a job. Do I can't see why passengers have to put up with that sort of thing. And the leash now, mind, or out he goes. Is it? Now then, Charlie, now then, don't give your lollipop to the doggies. Don't jump. My trains are overcrowded as it is. Without bringing a lot of smelly brutes, I must say. Excuse me, sir, while I open the window. Very well. Some people are never satisfied. Never you mind, Charlie. The dog is man's truest friend. Never mind what anybody may say. All right, lady, all right. I consider myself ticked off. And always remember, Charlie, that a man who doesn't like a dog is no friend of yours. You can be sure that Richard Annie didn't keep a dog. Not him, the murderer. No man as would do in a poor old lady through the art in his flat would keep a dog. No, Charlie. Doon, Jock. Doon. Curious case, that Portland Place murder affair, isn't it, sir? I'm good about it. Ah, you know, I'm always interested in a good murder. Here we are, sir. Leeds Guardian Chronicles, special edition. I, I haven't seen this one myself. 
Stocking occurrence in Portland Square. The milkman's story. Annie disappears. Seen us in Pankhurst. Hello. He is art one. Look at this, sir. Yes? There's reason to believe that the suspect, Richard Annie, is headed north of the Tweed. Scotland Yard is searching all Great Northern trains. Say Great Northern? Well, that's us. Oh, shut your gab. What are you trying to do? Frighten the kiddies? All right, lady. All right. I'm sorry. Maybe he's sitting here for new in this very compartment among us. The blood of the slain not dry on his hands. June Joe. <laughs> we'll soon settle that. Here it is. Mid-light, hair brown, eyes blue, moustache, about 35, wearing a grey tweed suit. Now, let's have a look at his picture now. Here it is. Turn to page 17. <laughs> Stolen car. Large green Daimler speeding south. Gotten soda, sir? Is that the best thing you can suggest, Sullivan, for a man who's barely escaped with his life from a motor accident? Brandy and soda, sir? Goes right to the head, he did, Sullivan. Went through it like butter, down the bank and into the burn. Lucky he came out alive. Gin and tonic, sir. You said lucky thing, too. I came along, fished him out. Gentleman's staying for supper, Sullivan. Better take him a change of clothes when he's out of his bath. His things were badly torn up. Not a pleasant thing to turn over three times in a Damon affair, and Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Done with his bath. I laid out the blue serge, Sir Harry. Good work, Sullivan. Uh, tell Cook there'll be two to supper. He has been so informed. There is still one question unsolved, Sir Harry. Yes, Sullivan. Uh, it, as you observed, sir, the gentleman has just been in a motor wreck. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> Make it whiskey, Sullivan. Very good, sir. Oh, hello, hello, hello there. Hello. I say, that's quite a neat fit. You look better in that blue serge than I ever did, doesn't he, Sullivan? Yes, Sir Harry. Uh, you stay for supper, old man, I hope. Sullivan tells me it's pleasant. My name is Parker. Parker. We haven't introduced ourselves. I think you ought to know that you have in your house the man that is wanted for the Portland Place murder. Well, what's that? My name is Richard Henney. Sullivan? Yes, sir. Your duty is to send for the police and give me up. Don't think I'll get very far. There'll be an accident and I'll have a knife in my ribs and I'll also have to thump it. Nevertheless, it's your duty as a law-abiding citizen. You don't look like a murderer to me. Does he, Sullivan? No, Sir Harry. I'm not. The fact is that three days ago, a man was found dead in my flat. Why, oh, say, also, Sullivan. Yes, sir. Mr. Harry says a man was found dead in his flat. Murdered, Mr. Henry? Murdered. The Portland Police murder, Sir Harry. Uh, yes, Sullivan. A man, Mr. Harry? The victim of the Portland Police murder, Sir Harry, was a woman. It was a man. Oh, now, look here, old fellow. The press, Sir Harry, is very clear on this one point. The victim was a woman. An old woman, wasn't it, Sullivan? It was, sir. An old woman. The body that was found in my flat on Tuesday morning was the body of a man named Nathan Skoda. Uh, Sullivan. Yes, Sir Harry. Uh, the whiskey. The whiskey, Sullivan. Uh, very good, sir. Uh, and Sullivan. Yes, Sir Harry. Uh, bring two glasses. Well, here it is. Here's the whole story. My name is Richard Henney. I was a mining engineer in Rhodesia in Bulawayo. I made my pile and I came back to England three weeks ago. Well, last Monday night, I got back to my flat about ten o'clock. I live in a new block behind Portland Place. The port in the building, he leaves around nine. As I came up the stairs, I heard my phone ringing. Hello? 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 Call it for me. In heaven's name, toss it off. Quick, quick. You locked? Yes. I'm very sorry. It's a great liberty, I know, breaking in this way, but... I need help worse than any man ever needed it. Can I count on you? It depends. You see, I have an idea that this time tomorrow, I shall be dead. That's what he told me. The minute he got in the door, the little man was scared stiff. I could see that. He carried a parcel under his arm, a brown paper parcel, and there was 
A trickle of blood on his left hand from a fresh cut across the knuckles. There's going to be a war. Now, now wait a minute. So he told me, a war. And this war is going to come as a great surprise to Britain. Somebody's going to be murdered. He, he told me this Thursday, remember, Thursday night. In London on July 14th. That's six days from now. Or three days, I mean. A fellow called Carolides, the Greek premier. He's booked. Nothing on earth can save him. But that's just the beginning. According to what this fellow told me, Carolides isn't important. Not in himself. It's what comes after he's dead. On July 15th, the chief of the French general staff will be in London. On that day, the British Admiralty is to give him a complete statement of the disposition of the entire British fleet on mobilization. At least I gathered something like that. Something uncommonly important. Now then, on the 15th of July, there will be others in London. I don't know who. He had a name for them. He called them the Black Stone. But somehow this information, those secrets about our fleet destined for France, will be diverted into their hands on that day, July 15th. And it will be used, remember, used a week or two later against England by our deadly foe with great guns and swift torpedoes suddenly in the darkness of a summer night. I know you don't believe this. I didn't when he told me. I, I do now. I noticed that while he was talking, he kept fingering a little black notebook which was full of writing. Some sort of code it looked like. You may believe me or not, as you please. There it is. This is the fellow speaking. I fellow with a brown paper parcel and a cut across his knuckles. This is what he said. Yes, for this information. I got the first hint nearly two years ago in an inn on the Ackensee in Tyrol. I collected my other clues in a first shop in the Galician quarter of Budapest, in a stranger's club in Vienna, in a little bookshop on the Rackenstrasse in Leipzig. I completed my evidence ten days ago in Paris. Until yesterday, I thought I had worked unobserved. Don't answer it. Don't answer it. For me. Those men calling for me to see if I'm here. Don't answer it. Mr. Hannay, let me show you something. Mr. Hannay, will you please turn up the light? Yes. Now, Mr. Hannay, come to the window. Look. Down there. I looked. For a moment I saw nothing but the deserted street below. Then I noticed a man in a bowler hat. Standing in a doorway across the street. When I came home last night, I found a card in my letterbox. Here it is. A black stone. What's a black stone? Well, that's a name. That's what they call themselves, these people. When I got that card, I knew that I had to die. Why don't you call the police? Oh, no use. These men followed me here. I'm bottled in this building and she has a pickled herring. And that's why I'm telling you all these things tonight. Tomorrow, I'm going to make a break for it. If I fail, well, I, I should hate to leave the scene without leaving somebody behind to put up a fight. Well, I... I still didn't know what to make of the little chap, and it was getting late. I made him a bed in my smoking room. Good night. Good night. And in case I'm not here in the morning, I haven't the privilege of your name, sir, but let me tell you, you're a white man. Oh, I say, before you go to bed, I'll thank you to lend me a razor. I locked the door of my room. Finally, I fell asleep. I awoke before dawn, couldn't go to sleep again. I lit a cigarette and started to read. Then I noticed that the light in the smoking room was still on. I got up, I had a cigarette in my mouth, I remember. I pushed open the smoking room door. I saw something which made me drop my cigarette. Bolt upright in a chair by the window sat an old woman with her eyes open. There was a long knife through her heart which skewered her to the back of the chair. Skoda! 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 There was no reply. Then I noticed three things. First, that this old woman's wig had fallen slightly askew. Second, that the brown paper parcel I'd noticed under Scudder's arm the night before was now lying open and empty on the table. Third, that across the knuckles of the old woman's left hand was a fresh, unhealed cut. From the limpness of the body, I estimated that Scudder had been dead for about two hours. I wondered what had happened to the little black book. I searched Scudder's body and found nothing. And I noticed the whole flat had been ransacked in the night. The insides of books, drawers covered even the sideboard in the dining room. 
I shut it and bolted every door and window in the flat. Skoda's story was true. The proof of it was lying under the tablecloth. The men who knew that he knew what he knew had found him and had made certain of his silence. His disguise had not saved him. I'd be the next to go. But suppose I went out now and called the police. What kind of a story could I tell about Skoda? If I told them the truth, they'd simply laugh at me. I'd be charged with murder. The best I could hope for was jail. And that was just where they wanted me. An English prison was as good a way of getting rid of me till after July 15th as a knife in my chest. I got on an atlas and looked at a big map of the British Isles. My notion was to get off some wild district, some open space where my South African experience would be of some use to me, some place where I'd be in safe hiding for six days until July 15th. I decided Scotland would be the best. There was a train from St. Pancras at 7.10. I went to the window and looked out between the shutters. It was beginning to get light. I saw a man standing in the doorway, a man in a bowler hat. Then, a man in evening dress came down the street. He walked unsteadily. He caught sight of the man in the bowler hat and went over and spoke to him. Then he crossed the street and came into the house. In the vestibule. Uh, cut. Somebody wrecked my script. Where's my page 25? When a man in evening dress came down the street, he walked unsteadily. He caught sight of the man in the bowler hat and went over and spoke to him. Then he crossed the street and came into the house. Knocking. Well, honey, wake up. It's Marmaduke. Good old Marmaduke. Marmaduke the early one. Wake up. We're going to Scotland. Remember, there's a shooting. Good old shooting. Uh, sorry, fishing. Good old fishing. Nothing like an early start. Good old early one. I say, honey. Ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Hey, honey, your phone's ringing. Wake up and answer it. Honey. Must be drunk. Betty with a yellow bill hopped upon my windowsill, cocked a shining head. In the vestibule, I gave the milkman a sovereign to lend me his cap, his overhauls, and his milk cans for ten minutes. I went out into the street, past the doorway, past the man in the bowler hat. Seven ten, I was in St. Pancras Station. Scott Express.
on board caught sight of me, I could see him looking at me through glasses. Now it was speeding eastward again till it became a speck in the blue morning. My enemies had located me. The next thing would be a cordon around me. There wasn't even enough cover on the whole moor to hide a rat. I tossed a coin, heads right, tails left. Fell heads my turn north. A little while I came to the brow of a ridge. Away down a slope a couple of miles away, several men were advancing like a row of beaters at a shoot. It may have been my imagination, but I thought I saw two figures. One, two, perhaps more moving in its glen beyond the stream. And here's another thing I learned in South Africa, hunting. If you're hemmed in on all sides in a patch of land, there's only one chance to escape. You must stay in the patch and let your enemies search it and not find you. That was good sense, but where on earth could I hide in that tablecloth of a place? I lost my head and started to run. Suddenly, I stopped. In a tiny bite of road... Beside a heap of stones, I found a road mender. Hello. What seems to be the trouble? Hmm? The trouble is that I'm a teetotaler. Not really. I am a strong teetotaler. I took the plate of that mattonless and I had not touched a drop of whiskey since. What did it? I drink the call brandy. Last night, my daughter Moran was buried. And I was sleeping all day yesterday at this brandy. And I do well no be well for a fortune. Well, why don't you go to bed? Ah, that's easy speaking. But I got a poor scared yesterday evening, saying a new road surveyor will be ruined today. Eh, he'll come and he'll not find me. Does the new surveyor know you? No, him. He's just been a week at the job. You go back to your bed and sleep in peace. I'll take on your job for today and see the surveyor, and he'll never know the difference. Lord, here at the billy. Here's my mother. Goodbye, ma, and God bless you. Now, here, wait a minute. What's your name? My name's Alexander Turnbull. You better tell me a bit more about yourself. You want me to do a good job of this? And my friends call me Specky, for I wear glasses. Just, just speak the surveyor fair and call him sir, and he'll be very pleased. I'll be back at midday. I borrowed his spectacles and filthy old hat, borrowed to his false stump of a clay pipe, and then when he'd left, I set to work to dress for the part. I got my boots and trouser legs all white from the dust of the road, and I set to work on my face with a handful of dust. I made a watermark on my neck, rubbed a good deal of dirt also in my cheeks. Now, I've noticed that Roseman's eyes always look a little inflamed, so I got some dust into both of mine. The Roseman had left his lunch behind him in a green tin and an odd copy of the Dumfries Gazette. I ate several of the thick, thick slabs of cheese and drank a little of the cold tea. I bit and scraped my fingernails till the edges were all cracked and uneven. The men I was matched against would miss no detail. Then I went to work. I remember old Peter Pinard, an old scout in Rhodesia, once telling me about the way to disguise yourself. He said the secret of playing a part was to think yourself into it. Cut. So I recall the years that I'd spent... Cut. Go right into the motorcycle. I am. Are you Alexander Turnbull? I am. You have charge of this section? Aye. Good. A fair bit of road, Turnbull, and not badly engineered. A little soft about a mile off, and the edges what cleaning. Uh, see you look after that. Aye, sir. Good morning. You'll know me the next time you see me. I will not. Goodbye, love. So my disguise was good enough for the surveyor. The morning went by. Still no sign of my enemies.
Just about midday, a big car drove down the hill. Drew up a hundred yards down the road. Two men climbed out slowly as if to stretch their legs and sauntered towards me. One was lean and sharp and dark. The other was plump and smiling. Morning. Fine, easy job of yours. You're sitting a day in your hinterlands on the cushions. You get your papers in good time. He was looking down at the Dumfries Gazette lying beside Turnbull's lunch tin. I'd noticed earlier that there was a front-page story about the Portland Place murder. You have a fine taste in boots? Were those made by a country shoemaker? They were not. They were made in London. I got them for the gentleman was here last year for the shooting. What's my stuff? Thereby sneaks to kill. They got into their car and were out of sight in a minute. Went right on breaking my stones. It was just as well. Ten minutes later, the car returned. Went by without stopping. I knew they were watching me. The black stone left nothing to chance. Well, I spent the night on a shelf of the hillside. The leave of a boulder where the heather grew long and soft. I woke very cold and early, about an hour after dawn. First, I couldn't remember where I was. I saw the pale blue sky through a net of heather. Then my own boots placed neatly in a blackberry bush. I looked down at the valley. There were men below. Police, they looked like. Not more than a quarter of a mile off. Spaced out on the hillside like a fan. Beating the heather. break. You're listening to the Columbia Network's presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater in John Buchan's 39 Steps. We shall resume the story in a moment. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Columbia Network is presenting 39 Steps by John Buchan. And now the Mercury Theater resumes the story with Orson Welles as Richard Hannay and Marmaduke Jopley. Herds of gamekeepers. These fellows are hefty men on the native heath. Looking back, I saw that only three were following me. The others had fetched a circuit to cut me off. I crossed a burn and came out on a road which seemed to be kept with some care. A few hundred yards to my left, I saw the chimneys of a house smoking. The veranda in front of the house, and through the glass, I saw the face of an elderly gentleman meekly watching me. Seem in a hurry, my friend. His face was round and shiny like Mr. Pickwick's, and the top of his head was as bright and bare as a glass bottle. Through the window could be seen some figures half a mile off. Oh, I see. A fugitive from justice, eh? Well, we'll go into the matter at our leisure. Go into my study. You'll see two doors facing you. Take the one to the left and close it behind you. Close it tight. I did as I was told. I was in a little dark chamber that smelled of chemicals. Wasn't any too happy. Something about the old gentleman's rather terrified me. He'd been too easy and ready. Almost as if he'd been expecting me, and his eyes had been horribly intelligent. All right, you may come out now. Have they gone? They have gone. I convinced them that you had crossed the hill. I do not choose that the police should come between me and one whom I am delighted to honor. He smiled gently and nodded to the door behind me. I turned and saw two manservants who had me covered with pistols. This is a lucky morning for you, Mr. Richard Hanny. Hey. Hey, what's going on here? Hey, were you calling Richard Hanny? My name's Ainsley. So? Oh, but of course you have many names. We won't quarrel about a name, Mr. Hanny. No, I suppose you're going to give me up after all. And a low, dirty trick, I call it. My God, I wish I'd ever seen that cursed money. Here it is and be damned to you. You are a clever actor, Mr. Hannay, but not quite clever enough. Oh, no, I shall not give you up. My friends and I will have a little private settlement with you tonight. Now, for God's sake, stop jawing. Everything's against me. What's the harm in a poor devil with an empty stomach feeding up some money finds a lost pocketbook? That's all I've done for that. I've been chivied for two days by these blasted bobbies over these blasted hills. I could see the dawning of a doubt in his mind. I tell you, I'm fair sick of it. You oblige me with the story of your recent doings, Mr. Hannay. I can't, Governor. I've not had a bit to eat for two days. Give me a mouthful of food, then you'll hear God's truth. You're a good liar, Hannay. I do not propose to let you go. 
If you are what you say you are, you will soon have a chance of clearing yourself. If you're what I think you are, I don't think you will see the light much longer. Hearing, sir? Yeah, yeah. I want the Daimler in five minutes. There will be three to dinner. Goodbye, Mr. Hanley. We will meet again to... to... tonight. She marched out of the room with a pistol in the small of my back. There's a risk. Pistol in the small of my back. They locked me up again in the dark chamber that smelled of chemicals. The blackest pitch. Made out that the walls were lined with boxes and barrels and sacks of some heavy stuff. The old boy had gone off in the car to collect his friends. They'd be back soon. Probably the two who'd interviewed me yesterday, the plump one and the dark, thin one. As I figured it out, I had just about two hours longer to live. I thought of Skoda in the dress of an old woman sitting in that chair by the window with his eyes open. I got up and started moving around the room again. I found a handle in the wall, the door of a cupboard of some sort. In the cupboard, there were bottles and cases of queer-smelling stuff and coils of fine copper wire. There was a box of detonators and a lot of cords for fuses. Also, half a dozen little gray bricks. I took up one and smelled it and put my tongue to it. I've been a mining engineer for nothing. I know letonite when I see it. There was a risk. But if I didn't take it, I'd probably be occupying a six-foot hole in the garden by evening anyhow. I took a quarter of a letonite brick and buried it near the door. And I got a detonator and a couple of feet of fuse. Then I lit a match. shoulder. There was a poisonous yellow fog all around me. Somewhere behind me, I felt fresh air. I started to run. Much later, in a clearing on a hillside, I saw a small stone building with a tower. The door was open. It was dark and cool inside. I sat down on one of the benches. The pain in my shoulder was unbearable. Then I heard steps coming down the path. I found a small door in one corner and narrow steps running up the tower. I went up. Most of the top of the tower was just taken up with bills. There was a small ledge outside, just wide enough to lie down in. I heard a man downstairs below me in the tower. I lay there with a burning head and the sun glaring in my face. Right above me was the monoplane. They couldn't have missed me lying there on the open ledge. They knew where I was. Soon they'd come back for me. back for me. Then, suddenly, right under me, bells, bells, and presently up the hillside, little dark knots of men began to appear. They came slowly, dozens of them all moving towards me, slowly advancing, closing in on me. To move. I lay there waiting for them to come and get me. Now they were in the building below me. In a few seconds, they'd be up the stairs. I waited and no one came. I lay there waiting and then a thought struck me. Scudder had been murdered on Thursday night, four days ago. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Four days. Then, then, these men coming up in the hill in little dark knots in black, slowly advancing, closing in on me, were not my enemies. They weren't after me. They didn't even know I was there. They were peacefully walking to church with their families. It was Sunday. Presently, a large green open Daimler drove up. Three men got out. My plump friend, the professor, and the dark young man. I could see them looking up at my tower. Two of them went into the church. The thin man stayed in the car. I waited. waited, but they didn't come. The service had just begun. That gave me about an hour. There was an old iron drain pipe running along the corner of the tower. It didn't seem particularly solid. Besides, I was in full sight of the man in the car. At that moment, it started to rain. The man in the car looked up at the sky and turned in his collar. Then he shrugged his shoulders, got out of the car and went into the church. 
started down the side of the tower. Halfway down, my foot slipped and I fell. The ground was soft. I got up and went over the car and drove off. Action. And I drove on south, downhill into the valley. The road is full of sharp curves and shining under my headlights and very slippery. <laughs> Soda, sir? Yes, that's right, Sullivan. Uh, Mr. Henry, I may talk like an ass most of the time, but I can size up a man. Mr. Henry. Uh, thanks, Sullivan. Pull it, will you? Two stiff ones. Very good, sir. Uh, well, Henry, you're no murderer and you're no fool. And I believe you're speaking the truth. I'm going to back you up. Now, what can I do? I've got to get in touch with the government sometime before June 15th. That's the day after tomorrow, if you can help me. All right, I will. The permanent secretary at the foreign office is my godfather and one of the best going. He's out of his cottage in the country, trout fishing. If you start early tomorrow morning... Sullivan. Yes, sir, Harry. Have the station wagon here at six in the morning. Yes, sir. And reserve a compartment on the Southern Express. Yes, sir. Oh, and Sullivan. Uh, yes, sir, Harry. Send a telegram to Mr. Walter. Yes, sir. If a man called Hanny... Better not use my real name. Right, you are. If a man called, uh, uh, uh... Sullivan, you will think of a name for Mr. Hanny? Yes, sir. A short name, sir. Uh, yes, Sullivan. And British, of course, sir. Oh, yes, Sullivan. You can count on me, sir. Sir Walter Bullivan, Kenneth near Arthur's Well, Cambridgeshire. If a man called Trisden appears tomorrow, treat him kindly. He may tell you something that will wake you up. He will pass the word Blackstone and whistle Annie Laurie. Love, Harry. Stream, isn't it? Yes, sir. I'll back our Kenneth for trout fishing against any river in England. Look at that big fellow there. Four pounds if he's an ounce. I don't see him. Look, there. Yard from the reeds, just above that stickle. Hmm. Uh, it must be a black stone. Yes. Wise conspirator that knows his own name. You're Sir Walter. Um, now then, Mr. Henney. My nephew promised you'd tell me something that would wake me up. I'm ready. Oh, uh, Mr. Henney, before you begin, I think I ought to tell you. I got a letter from Skoda this morning. Skoda? Yes. Skoda's been dead a week. It was written on the 8th, the day before he came to you. His letters usually took a week to reach me. They were sent undercover to Spain and then to Newcastle. What did he say? A great deal. Strange fellow, Skoda. He knew more international secrets than any secrets of his men in Europe. The trouble about him was he liked to play a lone hand. He'd never tell us all he knew. Besides, he was getting romantic. Blackstone. Like a penny novelette. So, Walter, is Carolitis in London? He is. Been there for days. In his letter, did Skoda say anything about Carolitis? Premier Carolitis? Skoda said that the... Uh... 14th of July, today, Carolides would be murdered. Carolides? Murdered? Nonsense. There's no state in Europe once you might have the way. The virtuous Carolides is likely to outlive us all. I'm afraid Skoda went off the trail there. Sir Walter? Yes, he? What is it? Telegram, Sir Walter. Just came through from London. Thanks. Mr. Henney, if you'll excuse me. Heath, car, right away. Call the foreign office. Tell them I'm on my way up. Yes, sir. I apologize to the shade of Stoda. Carolides was shot dead this evening, a few minutes after seven. It begins to look like war, Mr. Henning. What about our naval plans, Sir Walter? You know what Skoda said about them. He said tomorrow, July 15th. They're taking no chances, Mr. Henning. General Defour, chief of the French general staff, arrived in London at five today. He dines with the Prime Minister, and then he goes to the Foreign Office, where four people will see him. Whitaker from the Admiralty, myself, Sir Arthur Drew, and General Winstanley. Lord Stirling may be there. Do you never know about him? He 
gets more erratic every day. The Foreign Office, General Defoe, will get a certain document from Whittaker. After that, he'll be motored to Portsmouth, where a destroyer will take him to Harb. He won't be left unattended for a moment till he's safe in Paris. Same with Whittaker, till the papers are out of his hands. I don't mind admitting I'm horribly nervous. If those plans were stolen, could the disposition be changed? We can't make any serious gains in those dispositions, Mr. Henney, unless we alter the geography of England. And now, gentlemen, that our meeting is over, I must ask you to give me a few minutes longer of your time. Gentlemen, I ask you to meet Mr. Henney. How do you do, Mr. Henney? General Defour. Honor to meet you. Sir Arthur Drew. How do you do, sir? John Fittaker. How do you do, sir? General Wynne Stanley. How do you do? Gentlemen, I've taken the highly unusual step of asking Mr. Henney to attend our meeting tonight because Mr. Henney is in possession of certain vital information which every one of us here... I, I am sorry, Walter. I am a sick man. I am going back to my bed where I belong. Good night, gentlemen. Good night, Mr. Hanny. I'm sorry I can't stay to hear what you've got to say. Oh, and Whitaker, whatever comes up, you take care of it. Don't call me again to, to, tonight. Stop that man. Really, Mr. Hanny? I tell you to stop that man. Stop him. Mr. Hanny, I think you're forgetting. I beg of you to stop him. If you won't, I will. Too late. Gentlemen, who do you think went through that door a minute ago? Lord Sterling. He did not. It was his living image. But it was not Lord Sterling. Lord. Gentlemen, have you ever known Lord Sterling to stammer? Henry, have you gone out of your head? I tell you, gentlemen, the man that went out was not Lord Sterling. It was someone who recognized me. Someone I've seen in the last three days. Oh, really, Mr. Henry, I think you have gone out of your that head. That remains to be seen. So, Walter, may I call Lord Sterling's house? I'll do it. Hello? Let me what say house. Hurry, please. Hello? Yes? Yes, hello? This is Walter Bullivant. Will you ask Lord Sterling to call me the minute he gets home? What? What's that? Are you sure? I see. Thank you. Lord Sterling hasn't been out of his bed all day. He went to sleep at six and woke up a few minutes ago. Well, well then, what is it? The black stone. Oh, but it's madness. Do you mean to tell me that that man came here and sat beside me for the best part of an hour, and I didn't detect the imposture? My own chief. You were too interested in other things to have the use of your eyes. You took Lord Sterling for granted. If it had been anybody else, you might have looked more closely. The thing that puzzles me is, well, what good will his visit here do that spy fellow? Here are the plans right here on this table. He couldn't carry away several pages of figures and strange names in his head. Yes, he could. A trained spy has a photographic memory. You noticed he said nothing, but went through those papers again and again. Those plans are as lustrous as if he had them in his pocket. Give me the home office. Port division. Have every port watched. Every outgoing steamer check, and he hasn't a rag of a clue. I wonder. It's got his little black book. It's in code, except for one sentence scrawled over the last page. Skoda knew where those fellows would hide. He knew when and where they were going to leave the country. I wonder if in that sentence... What is it? Let's hear it. Thirty-nine steps. I counted them. High tide, 10, 17 p.m. Thirty-nine steps. That is a clue, don't you see? It's the place where they're going to leave from. Tomorrow was the day, and it was someplace where high tide was at 10, 17. There are at least a hundred places in England where the tide's high at 10, 17 tomorrow. And they may have gone tonight. Not they. They have their own secret plans, and they won't be hurried. Thirty. Thirty-nine steps. What does, steps. He... what does he mean by step? Doc, steps? They would have mentioned their number. It must be a place where there's more than one set of stairs. Home office. Department of Transportation. Hello. Bullivant speaking. I say, is there any regular steamer leaving for the continent at 10.17 p.m.? Look it up. What? You sure? Thanks. There's no regular steamer sailing for the continent at 10.17 p.m. from anywhere. There must be a private boat and a little port. That explains why the tide's important. Hello. Give me the Admiral Day. Hello. Walter Bullivant speaking. Hello, Jenkins. What places do you know along the east coast where there are cliffs and where several sets of steps run down to the beach? Yes, I mean steps, regular staircases. What's that? Place in Norfolk? Battleship? On the golf course? No, that's not it. No, no, marine chairs won't do either. Has to be more retired than that. What? Where else? Think, man, think. It's important. What's that? What do you call it? The rap. Listen to this, eh? A big chalk headland in Kent, close to Bradgett. Sir Arthur, look up the Admiralty tidetable, Bradgett. Kent. Yes, yes. A lot of villas on top of a cliff, and some of the houses have staircases down to a private beach. Hurry, right, Sir Arthur. Here, listen to this. Bradgett. 
High tide, July the 15th, 10.17 p.m. Bradgate, July 15th. Confidential reports, Richard Henney, Special Agent Sir Walter Bullivan, Permanent Secretary, Foreign Office. There is a villa with 39 steps leading down to the sea. Trafalgar Lodge, it's called. It belongs to an old gentleman called Appleton, a retired stockbroker, the house agent says. A decent old fellow, pays his bills regularly. It's always good for a fiver for local charity. Well, says in the cliff, I could see Trafalgar Lodge very plainly. A red brick villa with a veranda, tennis on behind it in front. The ordinary seaside flower garden full of marguerites and scraggy geraniums. There's a flagstaff with an enormous union jack hung limply in the air. Presently, I observed someone leave the house and saunter along the cliff. There's an old man wearing white flannel trousers, a blue serge jacket, and a straw hat. He carried field glasses and a newspaper. He sat down and began to read. Sometimes he'd lay down the paper and turn his glasses in the sea. He looked for a long time at the destroyer. I watched him for half an hour. Then he got up and went to his house. After lunch, I saw a foreign-looking yacht come up from the south and drop anchor pretty well opposite the rough. Later in the afternoon, a British destroyer came in. I found a place in an empty garden next door to Trafalgar Lodge, and from there I had a full view of the tennis court in which two men were playing tennis. I could hear their voices. One was the old man I'd already seen. The other was a younger fellow. They played with tremendous zest, like two city gents getting a workout. You couldn't conceive a more innocent spectacle. Ready? Full service. Fifteen or... Make yourself a drink on the way. Say, Bob, I'm going in to have a tub. Got into a copper lather. This'll bring on your weight and your handicap. Take you on tomorrow and give you a stroke a hole. You couldn't find anything more English than that, could you, sir? These men might be acting, but if they were, where was their audience? And yet there were three of them, and one was old, and one was plump, and one was lean and dark, and their house fitted in with Skoda's notes, and half a mile offshore was lying a foreign yacht. There was only one thing to do. Go forward as if I had no doubts. If I was going to make a fool of myself, I might as well do it handsomely. And I remember what old Peter Pinier told me in Rhodesia. Best guy I ever knew. He told me once, talking about disguises, that barring certainties like fingerprints, mere physical traits are of very little importance if a man really knows his business. He laughed at things like dyed hair and false beards and such childish follies. If you're playing a part, he said, you'll never keep it up unless you convince yourself that you really are the man you're pretending to be. I'd explain the game of tennis. These chaps didn't need to act. They just turned a handle and passed into another life, which came as natural to them as the first. Getting on eight o'clock, went for a walk along the cliffs. Out at sea in the blue dusk, I saw lights appear on the foreign yacht on the British destroyer way to the south and beyond the point, the bigger lights of steamers making the Thames. The whole scene was utterly peaceful. Half past nine, I strolled toward the Trafalgar Lodge. The Scotland Yard men would be posted around the house by now, but there was no sign of a soul. The house stood as open and public as a charity bazaar. Yes, sir? Does Mr. Appleton live here? Yes, sir. I'd like to see him, please. I'll see if he's in. Will you wait here in the hall, please, sir? Well, sir, I found myself in a neat hall. There were the golf clubs and tennis rackets and all the things you'll find in 10,000 British homes. There was a grandfather clock ticking, a barometer, and a print of Chiltern winning the Grand National. What name shall I say, sir? Uh, Hannay. Will you come this way, please, sir? Mr. Hannay. The old man rose to meet me. He was in evening dress. So was the plump one. The third, the dark one, wore a blue serge suit and the colors of some club or school. Mr. Hannay, you wish to see me? One moment, you fellows. I'll join you. Better go to the smoking room, Mr. Hannay. We'll stay here. I think we've met before, and I guess you know my business. Maybe, sir. Maybe. I haven't a very good memory. I'm afraid you must tell me your errand, for I really don't know it. Well, then, I've come to tell you that the game's up. I have a warrant here for the arrest of you three. Arrest? Really? Arrest? 
Good Lord, what for? The murder of Franklin Scudder in London on the eighth day of this month. Why, I never heard the name before. Good heavens, you must be mad, sir. Where do you come from? Scotland Yard. Oh, don't get flustered, Uncle. It's all a ridiculous mistake. These things happen sometimes. We can easily set it right. Well, I can show that I was out of the country on the 8th, and Bob was down here. You were in London, but well, you can explain what you were doing. Right, sir. Of course, that's easy enough. The 8th, last Thursday. Why, uh, that was the day after Agatha's wedding. Let me see, what was I doing? I came up in the morning from Woking and lunched at the club with Charlie Simmons. Then, oh, yes, yes. I dined at the City Hall. I put a punch didn't agree with me. I was seedy the next morning. Hang it all, there's the cigar box I brought back from the dinner. I think, sir, you'll see you're mistaken. And we want to assist the law like all Englishmen. And we do not want Scotland Yard to be making fools of themselves. That's so, Uncle. Certainly, Bob. Certainly. We'll do anything in our power to assist the authorities. But this is a bit too much. I can't get over it. <laughs> I <laughs> think what Aunt Nellie will say. She always said you'd die of boredom because nothing ever happened to you, and now you've got it thick and strong. Why, that's wonderful. <laughs> so, yes, just think of it. What a story to tell at the club. <laughs> really, Mr. Hannay, I suppose I should be angry to show my innocence, but it's too funny. <laughs> I almost forgive you the fright you gave me. You looked so glum, I thought I might have been walking in my sleep and killing people like Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Couldn't be acting. It was too confounded genuine. My heart went into my boots. My first impulse was to apologize and clear out the light from the dinner table. Candlesticks not too good. I walked to the door and switched on the electric light. Then a sudden glare made them blink, and I stood scanning the three faces. Well, I made nothing of it. One was old and bald. One was stout. One was dark and thin. That's all I could tell. Perhaps there were three men who had hunted me in Scotland. Perhaps they weren't. There's a silver cigarette box on the table besides me, and I saw that it had been won by Percy Appleton, Esquire, the St. Bede's Club, and the golf tournament. Well, are you reassured by your scrutiny? I hope you'll find it consistent with your duty to drop this ridiculous business, Mr. Hannay. I make no complaint, but you see how annoying it must be to respectable people. Are you going to drop it? No. Oh, Lord, this is a bit too thick. Do you propose to march us off to the police station? I have the right to ask to see your warrant, you know, but uh, I don't wish to cast any aspersions upon you, sir. You're only doing your duty, but you will admit it's horribly awkward. Well, what do you propose to do? I vote we have a game of billiards. It'll give Mr. Hanny time to think things over, show him there's no ill feeling. You play, sir? Yes, I play. Billiard room is downstairs, Mr. Hanny. Why don't you two start? Uh, we'll finish our cigars and come down later. I'd rather we went down together, Mr. Appleton. Well, if you insist. What a stubborn man you are, Mr. Hanny. We went to the billiard room. I followed them downstairs in a kind of dream. The billiard room had a large window which looked out on the cliff. The window was open and the moon was flooding the cliff and sea with a great tide of yellow light. Choose your cue, sir. Thanks. Plain or spot, sir? Spot. Short? Thanks. How about a few practice shots? Good work, Mr. Henning. I'm afraid you're in for a licking, Bob. Do we start? We'll begin. Do we talk? Well, what are you playing for? Shilling a game? That's all right. Heads or tails, Mr. Henning? Heads. Heads it is. You begin. Will you mark for us, Percy? Righto. Seven. That was a near one. Rough luck. Five. Eight. That's all. All right, Mr. Hannay. Five, that's 13. 17. Good work. Stop at 17. Oh, Percy, look at the time. You'd better think about catching your train. Percy's got to go to town tonight. I'm afraid you must put off your journey. Oh, dash it all, Hanny. I thought you'd drop that, but I've simply got to go. You can have my address, and you can have any security you like. No, you must stay. It was five minutes after ten. In twelve minutes, it would be high tide. Through the window, I could see the lights of the Ariadne, the foreign yacht offshore. Well, I'll go bail for my nephew. That ought to content you, Mr. Hanny. Was it my fancy, or did I detect some halt in the smoothness of that voice? Then I thought of something. Mr. Appleton... When does your nephew have to be in London? Tonight. And you say you'd go bail for him, Mr. Appleton? Yes. 
Yes, I told you I would. Well, then perhaps if I could arrange to call Scotland Yard early in the morning. No, no, Mr. Hannay. It simply has to be t- 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 tonight. Then I knew who he was. young dark man leaped from the window. He was threw it over the low fence and down the steps before a hand could touch him. Someone switched on the light. The plump one was lying crumpled in a heap. They'd got handcuffs on the old man. He's safe! Safe! You can't follow him in time! He's gone on the act! He's triumphed! The Blackstone has triumphed. I hope you'll bear his triumph well, Mr. Appleton. I ought to tell you that your yacht, the last two hours, has been in our hands. Has been in our hands. Well, Sir Walter, that's about all there is to it. That's the story as you asked me to set it down. You know the rest of it better than I do. Scott, I was right about the war, right, wasn't he? In about a week, I expect right in the middle of it myself. Because of my Matabiti experiences, I got a captain's commission straight off. I joined my division on Thursday at Aldershot, and I understand we'd be moving straight up to the front. Still, I'm afraid I had most of my excitement before I put on khaki. Anyway, goodbye, and thanks for everything. It was a great sport while it lasted. Yours very sincerely, Richard Hanney, August 8th, 1914. Columbia Network has brought you Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in 39 Steps by John Buchan. We now present the star and director of these broadcasts who tonight played Richard Hannay, Orson Welles. I have nothing to say. <laughs> okay, cut it, cut it off. Cut it off. Take the rest. What's the time exactly, Larry? Uh, I can't tell you. That concludes today's episode. We'd like to thank you and remind you to donate at choiceclassicradio.com. Remember, Your donations make episodes like this possible.